Well, good morning. Hello, hello. I feel like every time Jeremy lets me preach, he's like, here's 30 verses. Let's do it. So, so we're going to try and fit it in. Uh, I'm going to do my best, but I'm excited. Um, I, uh, maybe one of the more difficult sermons I've ever prepared for, if I'm being honest. Um, not only because it's kind of a crazy last week, but Ecclesiastes is like a hard book to one understand and hard to follow the writer. You know, he's called the preacher, the teacher. Um, he's, he's very choppy. He's jumping around the place. So we're going to just follow him this morning. So as we dig through the scriptures, I just want to go in verse by verse and, and follow where the God was leading the, the preacher as he wrote this to the people, okay? So really quick, thank you so much for joining us. Maybe this morning you, um, this whole Jesus thing and this whole like people lifting their hands and singing these songs and these weird words and like what is all this sitting up here? Like maybe this seems weird to you this morning. Um, first of all, thank you for joining us. Okay, so if you're an unbeliever in the room, thank you for joining us. Um, this is a safe space to ask hard questions. We want, we encourage those and we want those because we believe that all the satisfaction that you're seeking for is found in Christ. So would you come and ask those questions this morning? Um, we'd love to, to talk with you and meet you. Now I want to um, start off by thinking about Plato's forms. It's like, whoa, gear shift. Okay, Plato's forms, what do I mean by that? Ever since I took a philosophy class in college... I was fascinated with this idea of the forms that Plato had. Now, my, admittedly, my philosophical expertise is um, quite small. So if John's in the room, like, I apologize so much, John, if I botched some of this. Okay, so he's our, he's our resident philosophy PhD uh, candidate. So. <laughs> so here's the idea of the forms. When you think of the forms, I want you to think of them in an ultimate sense. The ultimate sense being like when you think of things like if you can conceptualize it, well, it is but a shadow of an ultimate thing. So we all seek love. We value and desire love because there's an ultimate form of love. We all seek beauty and we desire beauty because there's an ultimate form of beauty. And Plato has this, this tiered pyramid of things that just becomes more and more of a shadow as you go. And ultimately, the top of this pyramid is the good. And he's seeking the good. Now, I think I'm so fascinated by this for so long because I don't know that I've seen something so close to the truth, yet so far away at the same time. Because Plato goes and says, well, what he's saying is that knowledge is like the point. That's it. Knowledge was the key to happiness and virtue. And then we look here in the text today, and we see in Ecclesiastes that one of the very first things that the preacher says is vanity is knowledge. So it can't be it. But he's so close because there is this idea of like the ultimate good, like we love because we've been loved. We desire beauty because there is an ultimate beauty. It's so close. So let's dig in with the preacher this morning. Um, and and let's, let's just recap really quick where we've been at, because maybe you've been gone um, Maybe it's just good to go over because it's been, it's been seven chapters already. So let's just recap real quick. Um, Solomon's likely the writer of Ecclesiastes, though we're just going to call him the preacher for most of today. Okay? Solomon, or the preacher, has with much pessimism so far um, given us the results of the great experiment from life. He has resources that you and I will probably never have, and he has this great experiment as he explores all the aspects of life. He's placed the world in his hands. He's, he's, he's turned it over and, and shown us every different angle of it. 
And what is the conclusion he's come to? All is vanity. All is vanity. And now I'm not talking about real housewives or like dance moms vanity, okay? I'm talking about vanity in the sense of it's a vapor. It's a striving after the wind. He goes through knowledge, vanity, self-indulgence, vanity, even living wisely and righteously, vanity, toiling, wealth, and honor, vanity. And so here's the point so far, that our life under the sun cannot give us the key to itself, otherwise Solomon would have found it. So our life, as he says over and over, under the sun, under the sun, nothing under the sun is going to find, bring satisfaction to you. So as we are seeking beauty, as we are seeking justice, as we're seeking love, what we're doing is we're seeking to be satisfied. There's no final satisfaction found under the sun. So the next question is like, okay, well, what do, what do I do with that? Right? That, like, that's pretty bleak, right? No satisfaction under the sun. You're never going to be satisfied here on earth. What do I do with that? kind of like my philosophy class all over again, if I'm being honest. It's like my teacher that only presented more problems and like never helped us resolve anything. What do I do? Well, enters chapter 8, and after contrasting folly and wisdom in chapter 7, the preacher here finally recommends to us that wisdom, though it is vanity, wisdom is still the best antidote against the temptation and the vexations that are going to come up in, in our lives. The preacher opens by saying this, verse 1, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So who is like the wise? This is more of a rhetorical question, so maybe a better way to put this. He's saying is, there is none greater than the wise. This position of being wise is above all. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? This is the response in the form of a rhetorical question. So if you are wise, then you, it enables you to understand the things of life rightly. It, it helps you to rightly interpret situations. Which then does what? It causes you to stand out. It says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. So it, it gains you this respect, this influence, and it creates a particular beauty in you while you are in a particularly ugly world. It makes his face shine. And as your face is shining, this is going to draw people towards you like a moth to a flame because they're going to say, what are you carrying? What is that secret? What is this that you have that I don't have in this dark, ugly world? Remember, Ecclesiastes 3 has already told us that God makes everything beautiful in its time and that he has written eternity on the hearts of man. And an uh, early 1900s theologian put it this way. He said, God has put an insatiable curiosity or longing in our hearts to understand the meaning of life, to comprehend what makes sense of it all, to see the beauty and the rationale and the motive and the purpose of everything that occurs. But... He refuses to satisfy that desire. And he goes on, he says, the hardness of his face is changed because of this wisdom. So listen, even if you're a little bit rougher to look at in the room, right, the hardness of your face will be changed and shine, okay? And as I look around, I see a couple of these guys, and we say, thanks be to God, right? The hardness of our faces are changed. But really, but, but what does this mean? 
True wisdom forms a person in such a way that, that their demeanor becomes gentle, it becomes approachable, and no matter how previously callous it was, it doesn't matter. The hardness of your face is changed because of wisdom like this. And so this is just verse 1, and this verse 1 the preacher uses as a transitional verse to get us into chapter 8. So as he transitions, he's going to give us, a, again, this is going to be choppy feeling because he just drops a couple nuggets of wisdom as we keep going. So desire wisdom is what he's saying. Who is like the wise? Now, here's some wise counsel I'm going to give you. So it gets in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, this might sound familiar because we have the New Testament, right? And we have Paul writing in Romans 13. What does that say? Romans 13, let me read it for you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So it's not the point when it says keep the king's command. The point here is not to say some specific decree that they're talking about, like keep all of the decrees that the king says. That's not the point. The point is, above all, rightly fear God who has allowed the king to be in that position. Keep the king's command. Why? Because of God's oath to him. God has allowed him to be there. So we fear God above all, not the king. Verse 3 goes on. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The preacher is passing more wisdom to us. He's saying, act with great deliberation and intentionality. Okay? Don't, don't react hurriedly. Don't react aggressively, but with calmness. A quick sneak peek into chapter 10 that's going to be coming up soon. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So what do we take from this? That in the midst of turmoil, we are to practice being peaceful presences. So practice being in your workplace, in your home with your kids, with your spouse. Practice being a peaceful presence. Another takeaway that we could take is that you may even be drawn in to an evil cause unintentionally. We live in a very polarizing world. I don't know if you've noticed you may even be drawn into an evil cause unintentionally. Maybe it's a political or social movement. Maybe it's a teacher that you really love that all of a sudden is teaching a contrary gospel than what we have. But you loved him so much, you know? They were so good for so long. Or like this movement started out with such justice and it was scratching that itch for justice that I have. I trust the elders of this church deeply. And God forbid this, but if you ever hear a contrary gospel from Providence Road, from right here, flee from this place. Run. You are not to stand in an evil cause, it says. You flee from it once it proves to be evil. So maybe it's even unintentional that you get drawn in. If that happens, flee from it. Don't stand in it. Verse 4 goes on. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? This is an affirmation of the king's sovereignty again. But again, more so, remember the Romans 13, right? What we're trying to remember is that we are to fear the true sovereign, okay? Fear the true sovereign. 
Who is the true sovereign? Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the true sovereign. Fear the true sovereign. Verse 5 and 6. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Now, there's two aspects to interpreting a time in a way here. It says a time in a way twice almost. Two different ways I want you to look. One being, the wise are going to seek and they're going to commonly find the appropriate time for every situation. If you are wise, everything should be well-timed. And if you time things well, it actually will increase your chances for success in whatever you're doing. So it is wise to be mindful, like read the room kind of thing, right? Quick little story. This is embarrassing to me. I was so fixated on at camp this week where there was a girl, um, one of the students that showed up, and she looked identical to Josh Eller's wife, Marie Eller's. And so all week long, I'm calling her Mini Marushka, because like, that's Marie's name in the check. So I'm like, I was like, Marie, you've got to get a picture with Mini Marushka. You've got to go. And so I would like try and send, because it'd be weird. I'm not going to go up to like a, a girl and be like, hey, you're going to get a picture? That's awkward. So I was like, Bree, go get a picture. And, and so Bree's going over there, and she walks up, and she's like praying and like crying. And I was like, get the picture. And she's like, no, <laughs> I'm not getting the picture. And I was like, okay, that's probably a good, good call. Okay, and then the next day, I was like, go get the picture, and she goes up there, and then somebody else is crying now, you know, like a lot of teenage girls are crying at camp, that's how it goes. <laughs> Finally, we did get our picture, if you cared to know that part, but bad timing, right? The odds of my success in that were low because I wasn't reading the room very well. I was just focused on my goal so much and not reading like, oh, like, let's do this in a good time. Let's do this wisely. Could you imagine if I tried to get up here, and the first time that I'm hearing the word that I'm supposed to be preaching this morning was the same time you heard it? Maybe there's a, you send invitations to a wedding and people show up to this wedding and all of a sudden you didn't do any prep and you have no idea what's going on either. It's your wedding, right? That's a whole other sermon. Like, are you getting ready for the wedding? Maybe it's how we share the gospel. How are you sharing the gospel with people? Are you doing it wisely and seeking appropriate times? Maybe it's not the best way to stand on the corner of the street with a megaphone shouting at people. Maybe it's not the best way to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it next time, and then you never do it. Seek the appropriate time for all things. Another way to read a time in a way is that a time in a way, a lot of commentators say that it's actually a time for judgment. So the just way is actually a judgment. And remember, judgment in the Bible um, can mean God's wrath or it can mean God's mercy. Genesis 30, then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Psalm 48, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Jeremiah 10, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So judgment can be wrath or judgment can be mercy. And either way, there is a time and a way for everything, the preacher says. 
every single event that in the exact time that it's happening in your life has either one been determined or been allowed in the counsel and the foreknowledge of God. And all of this in perfect wisdom. I recently heard from our friend um, Charlie Hall at Frontline, and he was speaking, and he was speaking about going through seasons of crushings. And this is, this is helpful for us because it gives us language. So when we're feeling, we can't describe what we're going through except for that we are being crushed by the weight of our circumstances. Seasons of crushings. This sounds a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. It lies heavy on him and it lies heavy on us because we live in this like constant if-only state. If only I would have known I could have avoided this crushing. If only I would have done this, then I could have avoided this heartache and this crushing. If only, if only, if only. But church, listen, God knew Your afflictions are not surprises to him. I say this with true tenderness, so hear me. True tenderness in your lives. As I look at people that I love in this room and I know stories of in this room, I say this with true tenderness. He knew you were going to lose that job. He knew you were going to become addicted. He knew your marriage would fall apart. He knew you'd become permanently injured, that your child would have that medical condition, or that you would develop that cancer, or that you would lose that loved one. He knew. Before the foundation of creation, he knew. And I don't say all this to paint God in a sadistic manner. Okay, so don't hear me when I say that. It's actually quite the opposite. I say this to pass wisdom to you like the preacher is doing and give you direction to know where to look. So when these crushings come, because if you haven't experienced a crushing yet, it's coming. I don't say that to be bleak. It's just that's life. A crushing will come. And when it does, we need to know that there's somebody sovereign over everything. The world needs God's people to have the answer so that when life comes crashing down, Holy Spirit, would it be in us that when people that don't know Jesus see our crushings, that they ask, like we read this morning, what is this comfort that you have in life and death? And that by the Spirit of God that we can answer with faces shining wisdom that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? See, church, we don't know what is to be, but we do know who has allowed it to be. And we can find rest in that. And we can find rest knowing that all of the suffering that I've endured is not wasted. That there is a plan, that there is somebody sovereign over it all. We don't know what is to be, but we do know who has allowed it to be. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or the power of the day of death, and there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. The preacher makes the case to us here that it's wise to prepare for sudden evils, and it's even wise to prepare for our own deaths. How much have we thought about our own deaths? If you're asking yourself this question, how much have you actually thought about this? 
And I don't say this to like get into a depressive state, okay? I don't say it to get into a depressive state, but to, to contemplate our deaths, deaths in a way that it effectually changes how we're living now. Maybe you're thinking, Josh, how can I contemplate that and not get into a depressive state? It's a depressing thought. Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't have the rest of the story. We do. Look at verse 8 again. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Do you see it? Everybody seeing it? We know a man that had the power to retain his spirit. We know a man that had the power over death. We know the God-man, Jesus Christ. Listen to who he is. Hear these words. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just throw scripture at you right now. Hear these words. John 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Romans 14, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died, and he lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living, 1 Corinthians. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Titus 2, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. 2 Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Christ became lowly for us. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. This is the word of the Lord. And God's people said, Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that God has made a people for his own possession. That he has hidden us in Christ. As John writes in Revelation that, that this Christ is the one that holds the keys of death. This is who he has. We have the rest of the story that the preacher doesn't have. The preacher goes on though in verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to hurt. So as you hear who Jesus is, and when man has power over you in this life, you can rest in all of those promises that I just read to you. You can rest in that, and you can know that who you are hidden in is greater than any hurt that will ever come. Who you are hidden in is greater. Greater than any crushing. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Here the, the, the preacher is just telling us, you know, it doesn't make sense that the wicked seem to prosper. It's frustrating. This is perplexing that when I look at wicked people and they're prospering, this doesn't make sense. And he's just acknowledging that. And he goes on, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Could you imagine a child who their parents tell them, don't do this, and that child instantly does the thing, and there are no consequences for that behavior? 
What do you think is mentally happening in the child? The child's going to go, well, I hear I'm not supposed to do this, but nothing happened, so I'm just going to keep doing what I want. Anybody else in the room have a Silas, right? (laughs) Keep doing what I want. Well, if we look at this, he's saying the preacher is telling us the wicked's prosperity that they're having is much like the child. The wicked's prosperity actually is what's hardening their hearts even further. It's hardening it even further, and it's producing a false security in them and a desire for more wickedness. It's, it's, it's almost like the scary thought that we see in Romans 1, Paul's writing, and it's like one of the worst things that God could do to, to people is give them over to themselves. So in Romans 1, as we see that they were given over to themselves, that's like one of the worst punishments we could ever have. Because our wickedness will produce more wickedness and wickedness, and it will harden our hearts. The wicked believe that they're safe because it's a delayed time of justice. And I just want to give you a quick caution in this, okay? Be slow to rejoice in God's justice here. What do I mean by that? Before we're like, yeah, they're going to get it. It's coming. Before we go there in our hearts, like God's going to enact perfect justice. That's true. But be slow to rejoice in it because our own hearts, my heart and your heart, too, is wicked. Apart from Christ, we are wicked to our core. And it is good and right that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There may be some in this room that need to take a step back and say, am I truly hidden in Jesus or do I just know a lot about Jesus? Remember, knowledge is vanity. One commentator says it this way. He says, vengeance comes slowly but it comes surely. Be slow to rejoice for your own sake and honestly examine your heart before you look in at your neighbor's heart. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. The preacher is pro- professing a knowledge um, by faith, not sight, He says, yet I know that it will be well. It's a future event that he knows now. So knowledge by faith, not sight, that God will have his ultimate justice. It will come. Thanks be to God. It doesn't seem right, though, when a young man that loves the Lord loses his life early and a wicked man lives the old age, though, does it? Something in that feels wrong. Well, the preacher goes on in verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So the young man that loved the Lord that that loses his life early and the old man that lives to be 90, that's wicked, well, those 90 years are still vanity, still but a vapor. And justice will come and it will be well with the one who truly fears God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. See, this side of heaven, what the righteous and the wicked deserve, they don't necessarily always get. And we've seen that, right? 
Often, it's actually opposite. Often, the righteous are receiving the deeds of the wicked, and the wicked are receiving the deeds of the righteous. And we join in with the preacher saying, this is perplexing. I don't get this. Why, God? But we see that the Lord will clear up all things in his time. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is justice. So remember, when life's not making sense, that we know there's more to the story here. The preacher writing in Ecclesiastes doesn't have the full picture. We do have the full picture. We get to see how Jesus is actually the one that's satisfying all of these different pieces of wisdom that the preacher is giving us in this text. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of these things. Christ suffered the ultimate crushing so that when ours come, we can have confidence in these three things. He's sovereign over all, even death. He is the true sovereign. That there is a purpose and a plan for your crushing that he has set in perfect wisdom. And that the true king will one day resolve all debts and perfect justice will be done. So maybe you're saying, okay, I see this. This is good. This, this feels right. I see my hope. But it still doesn't answer the question, okay, but how do I live my life? I got, I'm still here. How do I live my life? Well, the preacher doesn't finish here. We have a couple more verses. And he goes on to say, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So in the face of injustice and persecution and confusion, of all these crushings that are happening, God's people are still meant to rejoice. Why? Because his life, that God has given him, because life is a gift of God. That is why we rejoice. Sam Storm says this. He says, individual steps in the plan remain a mystery and must be accepted by faith. But man must never lose the realization that there is a plan He must never begin to treat the common things of life, his food, his drink, and work, as though they were not gifts of God. So how do we actually live? Well, you continue seeking satisfaction. You continue seeking wisdom in life, knowing that you're not going to find it. You must look for it. No matter how bruising the process, you are wired this way. Remember, Ecclesiastes 3, God has put eternity on your heart. Let me read this quote from before again from um, Dr. Wright. God has put an insatiable curiosity or a longing in our hearts to understand the meaning of life, to comprehend what makes sense of it all, so we can see the beauty and the rationale and the motive and the purpose of everything that occurs, but he refuses to satisfy that desire. So you will skirt the edges of God's ways under the sun. As you are in Christ and the Spirit is transforming you, you will begin to see the truth as like you're, you're seeing through a dimly lit room. We will remain baffled, though. We won't understand. We don't have the answers to all of the whys and the crushings that will come in our life. But don't despair. There is a life to be lived on this side of heaven. It's a gift from God. 
and when seemingly unrelated events are occurring all around us and, and life is chaotic, we can find satisfaction and deep joy and faith in God does have a plan that he is working all things together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all of the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. A commentator I read um, put it well. He says, we must humbly and silently adore the depth of the unsearchable counsels, being assured that they are all wise, they are all just, and they are all good. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen.